This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association of Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Mark Dowdle, Superintendent of Gates of the Arctic National Park. Mark has been with the National Park Service for 24 years and started his new assignment at Gates of the Arctic in April of this year. He previously was Deputy Superintendent at Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina, and he served as a park ranger, supervisor, and manager in a number of parks, including the national parks of Boston, Yosemite, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and Yellowstone National Park. So welcome, Mark. It's good to be talking to you again. This is part two of our, uh, of our, our, our interviews. So thank you for for doing this again. So, how's it going Hello, up? Oh, Jay. How's it going up here in, in, in July? Hello, Jay. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. How's the weather? It's good. It's definitely summertime, and depending on where you are, almost throughout most of the state of Alaska, it's pretty smoky right now. There's a lot of wildfires burning in, in different places, and Boy. so there's a lot of smoke in the air right now. Do you have a responsibility for fire crews? Yes, sir. Uh, we sure do within our park areas, um, but we also partner with the state of Alaska and others uh, for any uh, firefighting needs. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, so how far are you from the North Pole? Yeah, well, we're located quite far north, uh, Gates of the Arctic, it's an area that many people may only get to visit once in their lifetime, and, you know, when you leave the landmass of Alaska to the north, you enter the Arctic Ocean, and there, there are only sheets of ice uh, at the North Pole, unlike Antarctica, where there's ice on top of land, so the actual North Pole is another 1,500 miles to the north of the park. Uh-huh. And what are the what are the dimensions of the Gates of the Arctic? Well, the entire state of Alaska, Jay, is really large. It's over six hundred and sixty-three thousand square miles. So sometimes it's hard to grasp the enormity of the size of the park, like Gates of the Arctic, when it's within such a large state. So the park is over thirteen thousand square miles, and it's the second largest national park in the U.S. national park system, and for perspective, that's the park is bigger than the state of Maryland. So if you were to go from the uh, from the east side of the park to the west side of the park, it would be about 180 miles. Wow. And if you were to go from the north to the south, it would be about 130 miles. Uh-huh. But remember that park boundaries are irregular, and those distances are from the widest points. But if you were to go from the most narrow portion, north to south, the park is about 60 miles. And what's the temperature range of the park? Yeah, well, uh, certainly uh, the state and uh, the Arctic are known for uh, and defined by its extreme weather. So let me, I, maybe it's best to give some examples. So these are weather readings taken from Bettles, Alaska, which is a village just south of the park. Right. So in the month of January, the average high temperature is does not even break 
zero degrees Fahrenheit. The average high in January is minus three, and the average low is minus 19, but the record low in, in the month of January is minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's pretty cold, and then in February it does warm up a bit, so the average high is two degrees above zero, and the average low is minus 18, and the record low is minus 64. Wow. Uh, I, and I know those records are you know, on the extreme end, but it's not uncommon to see negative 40 uh, in the winter, and in the summer it can get up into the 70s uh, or even the 80s, uh, but the weather can be very unpredictable, and uh, it could snow any month of the year. So the park was originally designated a national monument in 1975. Uh, why was it upgraded to park status uh, five years later? Yeah, well, the park is, is defined by its wildness and beauty. So, uh, you know, when you're looking at the entire state of Alaska, how do you select the best of the best for a national park? Right. And the history of the creation of the park dates back to the establishment of statehood for Alaska, the settlement of native land claims, and the strong desire to protect portions of the wild beauty of Alaska for future generations. Mm -hmm. So all through the 1970s, conservationists and the National Park Service waited uh, essentially for a passage of a bill from Congress which would create or expand uh, 15 different national parks in, uh, in Alaska. And finally, in 1978, when, uh, when time was almost running out uh, for this bill to pass, uh, President Jimmy Carter stepped in and used his authority to designate these areas as national monuments. And the president's actions essentially held these, these areas, uh, conservation units in trust while Congress concluded its deliberations. And then in 1980, Congress passed the Alaska National Interest Land Conservation Act uh, often referred to as ANILCA, and that created 106 million acres of new protected park lands in Alaska and Gates of the Arctic now had its national park and national preserve designation. So where do park visitors stay? Uh, are there lodging facilities in or near the park or in the native villages? Uh, where, do they, where do they stay when they fly in? Yes, well, uh, while inside the park, the option is to camp. There are no formal lodging facilities inside the park. Uh, however, there are commercial lodging options available in the neighboring villages, Bettles, Coldfoot, and Anatovic Pass. So how do you, how do you keep track of who, uh, who the visitors are? How do you number them? Yes, well, we count backcountry users at our visitor contact stations. Many, or even most of them, come through one of those stations to get information or even to check out um, uh, bear-resistant food containers. We, we loan those out to campers for free uh, during their stay. And we also use data from our commercial use operators to help us determine uh, the number of people that visit. So we don't have any entrance stations. We don't require permits to camp or to enter the park. So we we do have to somewhat estimate visitation based on the data available to us. Most of the people then are camping within the park. Are there regulations for their camping? Yes, we do have some basic limitations. Uh, for example, uh, you, 
people are limited to no more than uh, 14 days staying at a single location and uh, a group size limit of 10. And we do this to help uh, protect uh, fragile park areas. Uh, remember, this is a wilderness, so really the, the, the main rule is leave no trace. Camping, uh, the Arctic tundra is surprisingly fragile and it's slow to recover, so it's best to camp on durable services such as gravel bars, and generally there are fewer mosquitoes at these sites too. Oh, yeah. And uh, we uh, ask people to prepare and consume their food at least 100 yards from their tent sites because mm -hmm. this is bear country, right. um, big bear country. So it's important to store food in bear-resistant food containers and um, and to, you know to use some some common sense uh, things to help uh, keep bears out of out of camps. Uh, so are are there uh, conflicts that people have with bears? Yes, uh, it can happen. Uh, bears are not looking for conflict, but sometimes if they are surprised, right? Uh, they they may react to that um, defensively. And uh, but I think really the, the the best way to avoid conflict is to um, to make noise uh, when when walking or hiking to be with a larger group of people uh, or at least not alone and also to uh, I mentioned uh, storing food away from camping or sleeping areas I think that's uh, also a, a great way to avoid uh, conflicts with wildlife. There are native corporation lands within the park. Uh, what does that mean? Well, understanding that the National Park Service would help to protect uh, subsistence resources, the Nunamute Corporation, this is a newly established village corporation of Anatovic Pass, mm -hmm. and the Arctic Regional Corporation, which is the regional corporation encompassing the village, uh, they began to entertain the idea of a permanent dual ownership arrangement, and the National Park Service and Native Corporation officials considered a number of land ownership and management plans, and when Gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve was officially established in 1980, Anatubic Pass and the surrounding lands were included as an end-holding within the park boundary, and then later there was a land exchange with the National Park Service oh, so that the presently surrounds these native lands. Are these people all the same uh, indigenous or tribal group? Are they differentiated in some way? Yeah, so I, I think if you're looking at the history of human occupation and what is today called Arctic Alaska, there are historically two main groups. So living in today's interior Alaska are descendants of the Koyukon Athabascan people who came to Alaska from the West, from originally from Asia about uh, eight to 14,000 years ago, and then later, about 1,000 years ago, came the uh, Anubiak peoples, sometimes referred to as Eskimo, and they came by boat or walking across the sea ice, and their traditional homelands uh, were more along the coastal environments. And there are, at present, 11 what we call resident zone communities, and these communities have traditional affiliation with what later became parklands, and the people that live within these resident zones have subsistence privileges in the park. And when I say park, 
in the national park portion of uh-huh. Gates of the Arctic uh, versus the national preserve portion where there are more hunting is allowed in the national preserve area. Uh, do they carry on tribal customs? Are, are they differentiated that way? Uh, yes, particularly subsistence hunting uh, traditions, and uh, that can vary somewhat depending on, on the environment and the location. Do any of them herd caribou or reindeer? There is some uh, history of that in the Arctic. Uh, I'm not currently aware that anyone is. Are there issues that they have that you have to deal with? Well, I I think one of the biggest goals of the National Park Service is that we want to conduct meaningful tribal consultations for any park management issue or Uh business that may impact a tribe or a local village. There's an amazing amount of what we call traditional ecological knowledge, and this Uh is knowledge that has accumulated over many generations. Uh, And taking this knowledge and and these traditions into account is extremely important. So that's that's something that's um, a very high priority for us. Are the uh, hunting rights that they have within the park, are they restricted to certain kinds of animals, or are they generally uh, free to take whatever they choose? Generally free, but, you know, maybe I can help provide an example. So for the the residents of Anatovic Pass, I I mentioned them earlier, uh, they're all uh, Nunamute, uh, which are descendants of uh, mountain Athabascan tribes who traditionally migrated on a seasonal path between the Brooks Range and the Arctic coast. These traditional nomadic peoples had a diet and a lifestyle that revolved around migrating herds of on the North Slope. So today, Anatovic Pass is a village. People live there in the village. It has about 250 people, and you know they have regular air service to the outside world. They have a village store. They have a popular museum that highlights their history and culture, and Village residents still rely on caribou meat for subsistence diets, though they also hunt doll sheep and harvest trout and grayling, ptarmigan and waterfowl, and uh, people of Anatovic Pass still trade for food resources from the Arctic coast like meat and blubber from seals and whales. So uh, in addition to uh, caribou uh, and bears, there are there are wolves in the park, Arctic fox, wolverine, is that right? There are. Uh, wildlife is very diverse in the park. Uh, so, for example, um, we were to talk about mammals, 38 species of mammal found, mm-hmm. including muskrat, doll sheep, caribou, wolf fox uh, that you mentioned, grizzly, black bear, wolverines, and a number of small mammals such as shrew, squirrel, lemming, and, and beaver. What are the law enforcement issues that you have to deal with? You know, there are some, and, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, one, one or uh, when we talk about archaeological resources, these are historical objects left behind by uh, earlier peoples, and sometimes people find them, whether they're either hunting for them or they find them inadvertently. Uh, if they're removed, uh, that's not legal, um, but sometimes even hand them uh, can can harm the artifacts because it can remove them from their historical relevance. You know, it just takes them out of context uh, by moving them. 
and then uh, occasional uh, unlawful takes of uh, wildlife um, uh, in the national park portion of the park. Um, that has happened, but we do have rangers that patrol the park. Uh-huh. And then uh, sometimes resource damage, uh, for example, failing to uh, leave no trace, as I mentioned earlier. And we do have some areas like the Noatak River drainage and the Ergetch Peaks that are higher use areas. And um, sometimes these long-term impacts to these sites for more use uh, makes it difficult for them to recover. And you know, people can create new informal trails if they walk uh, in, a, in a line instead of spreading out, and you know, or if they camp in the same place all of the time, um, that can also harm uh, harm the environment. Um, and then I mentioned just storage of uh, food to, to keep uh, wildlife encounters down to a minimum as well. And uh, what kind of uh, fish do you find in the park? In the yeah, rivers? well, we do. Um, we do have fish. Uh, the most widespread species in the park are uh, Arctic green, uh, which is found in many rivers and those lakes uh, that have an outlet stream. We also have lake trout, northern pike, Arctic char, shefish, whitefish, and chum salmon are also found in northern waters, and you might even find king salmon spawning uh, in the park near the Noatak River. Then mm-hmm. they, do they just... Do, do some of the fish come up from the ocean? They swim up river? Uh, they can't travel that far. So, for example, the Noatak River does uh, travel all the way. It, it does leave Gates of the Arctic uh, National Park and Preserve and and uh, goes over into Noatak National Preserve and eventually does end up over in the Chukchi Sea. Oh, I see. And how about birds? Uh, what kind of birds do you have there? I suppose it's different yeah. between summer and winter, right? There can be. Well, definitely. So uh, we have a lot of migratory um, migratory birds. Overall, we have about 130 species of birds. This includes eagle, hawk, loon, sparrow, um, and as I mentioned, the migratory waterfowl. Uh, and in the winter, you might uh, see ptarmigan. Um, running around the park, and then uh, the big migration times are March and April. That's essentially springtime, and uh, where wildlife are, are heading north, and then uh, then they start to head south in late August or early September, which is essentially the end of summer for us. Uh, how about research? Uh, is, there, is there research that goes on in the park, and do they have to get permission to do that? Yeah, there are outside researchers that uh, request a permit. We call it a research permit mm-hmm. to do research in the park. And then we also do, the National Park Service does a lot of research itself. So we're part of a inventory and monitoring program uh, with the National Park Service and scientists gather and analyze information on specific park natural resources, uh, plants, animals, and even entire ecosystems uh, that can help uh, uh, really indicate overall biological health of the parks. And some of this current research includes study and migration patterns of Western Arctic caribou herd, doll sheep populations, and brown bear monitoring.
Is there any microbial life that is uh, found in the lakes and streams and rivers? And is that research? Yeah. I, I don't know much about this, Jay, but my understanding is that microbial activity has been found in ice sediment communities in the Arctic and that even bacterial populations have been found beneath alpine glaciers. You mentioned some wildfires uh, that are going on in the park. Do they burn in the tundra or or in the forest parts of the park? Where where do you have yeah more? Definitely more in the forest, uh, and they wildfires do occur. They're they're common in in the summer months. Uh, most of them are um, caused by lightning strikes, and they're a natural part of the ecosystem. So. While we do have tundra fires, they, they're more infrequent in the northernmost two-thirds of the park due to the Brooks Range and the Arctic uh, coastal influences on the north slope and really uh, a lack of vegetation to burn, you know, in the more rocky and sparsely vegetated alpine tundra. And there's more, uh, generally more precipitation in that area as well. But the, the most frequent, largest fires occur in the park's forested areas, the southern third of the park, lying within Alaska's northernmost um, interior lightning belt, where fire is a significant natural process. This area is located where plant communities include uh, fire-prone black and white spruce, and because of the vast and remote location against the Arctic, very few fire suppression efforts occur in the park. So really, most of the fires are, are left to burn naturally. So the fire policy is to let it burn, yeah. And, and it can depend if there are uh, private properties or resources of value that uh, a fire may um, threaten, then um, suppression activities would likely occur in, in those cases. So uh, let's go back to the archaeological sites. Are there any that are being actively uh, excavated or explored? So we have in the park uh, about 1,500 to 2,000 documented sites. But, Jay, there are likely tens of thousands of sites that probably exist that have not been documented yet. We have one of the most extensive and best-preserved archaeological records of any park in Alaska. I, I believe, and our archaeologists are uh, actively work to research and document and preserve these these remains of past of the past, and they consist of landscapes, sites, and artifacts. And let me give an, an example in our collection of the Gates of the Arctic Museum. Uh, we have an archaeological assemblage of uh, of artifacts from a Paleo uh, Inuit camp at Lake Macharak, and this site is about four thousand years old. It's very well preserved, and it's well preserved because it was a frozen site, and uh, this was found during a routine field survey in 2007, and archaeological evidence was found to include stone artifacts and animal bone fragments eroding out of a shoreline bluff on a lake. Is there evidence of, of human habitation at these sites, and how far back does it go? Well, it can depend, you know, site by site. Definitely, you know, it's an archaeological site, so it is evidence of prior human uh, occupation. Some of the records can go back as, as much as 12,000 years. And uh, what about animal finds? Are there any that are 
evidences that are of animals that are now extinct? I, I'm sure uh, you're familiar with the, the woolly mammoth. So there, there have been um, uh, finds of mammoth. Uh, I don't know to quite what extent uh, that was found in context to human occupation. Um, I, I can give you a, another example of a site that was found in the early 1980s. It's uh, now called the um, Hungry Fox Expedition Site, and this was found along the uh, Killick River. It's sort of in the northwest side of the park, and what was found is, is really interesting uh, because it's really excellent preserved organic materials like bone and antler and even some wood, and this is a very rare find because usually we only find things like stone chips. So it's, it's really neat to find something as rare as this. And this site's only about 400 years old, so it's you know it's it's not quite as old as some, but it was very well preserved. So what did they what did they find at Hungry Fox? They found materials like bone, uh, antler, you know, remains of animals that had been hunted. Uh, and even some wood. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very um, uncommon to actually find organic materials because those tend to, you know, degrade over time. So usually the things that you find are more uh, durable substances like stone and, and that type of thing. Uh, where, where is the Hungry Fox location? What part of the park? Yeah, it's the northwest side of the park. Uh, along the uh, Killick River. Oh, okay. Is there permafrost in that area? I don't know. Uh, I would say likely. Uh -huh. um, definitely, you know, it's it's very common in the in the Arctic. Right. And but I don't know about that particular site. I noticed on the website that there are annual reports from 2005 to 2012, and then they stopped. Uh, why was why is that the case? Definitely, during the history of the National Park Service, it was a very traditional uh, way to communicate what happened in a park over the course of a year was for the superintendent to write an annual report. Uh, I think, really, Jay, what's changed is technology and, and modern communications, and now information shared in many ways, including over the internet and over social media. So really, that, that information is there, but it comes out more continuously. I think that's really the main difference there. Are there any plans for uh, future management, uh, any innovations that you plan to introduce? Remember, this is a remote wilderness right. area with very few facilities. So we're not looking to do a lot of innovation other than ways to research and study and, and better protect uh, these wild and, and natural resources. Um, so I think most of that innovation comes in the form of technology and of, of ways of monitoring, uh, whether use of uh, cameras or sensors or even solar arrays and that type of thing to, to help with science and monitoring. In regard to the management of the park, are, are the people in the villages, the indigenous people, involved in those ma in that management activity? Yeah, I, I mentioned before about uh, we call them tribal consultations. These are formal, sometimes 
formal, sometimes informal, mm-hmm. uh, really government to government conversations with with tribes. And if there is something that uh, a management plan or action or or even routine business that may impact or have impact to a tribe, then those consultations are very important. Uh, we we want to hear from them and, and understand what those impacts may be. Right, right. Okay, Mark. Well, I think we've we have exhausted our time, but uh, I really appreciate you're doing this. It's been fascinating to learn about Gates of the Arctic. I've long I long wondered about them, and uh, this is this has been very informative. So, I appreciate appreciate very much uh, doing this. So, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Our guest today has been Mark Dowdle, Superintendent of Gates of the Ark National Park. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.